Here in Luke 15, I think we have some of the profoundest insights into the love of God as, as it is in the Lord Jesus, and some of the, the profoundest challenges, really, to our grace and our forgiveness and the radical acceptance of others, which is required of us. All the, the parables of Jesus, and this is especially the case with the ones we've got here in Luke 15, they all have an element of unreality in them. There's something in them that sticks out as unusual. And that element of unreality is, I think, the point of the whole, the whole thing. Now, the, the context is the, the Jews arguing with Jesus about why, verse 1, sorry, verse 2, he receives sinners and eats with them. Because to eat with someone, to break your bread with someone, was a sign of religious acceptance. Meal times were very sensitive issues. And to eat with someone was really seen as a, a religious act. That's why the Jews didn't eat with, with Gentiles. And of course, Jesus ate with sinners, he ate with anyone. Not because he approved necessarily of their behavior, but because his view was that you extend fellowship to someone in order to bring them to repentance, rather than as a sign that you judge that they are kind of on your level. That's a radically different approach to the, the use of the, the breaking of bread on the Lord's table, which has sadly been made in many, many communities. So he speaks unto them, verse 3, this parable. And you could take the three parables that we've got here in Luke 15 as really one parable, because they're all saying the same. He says, if you've got a hundred sheep and you lose one of them, which one of you would go after that which is lost until he find it? Well, the answer is 1% loss is not that great. No one really would be that bothered about it. But God and Jesus, the Good Shepherd, perceive the value of persons. And for them, one lost person, just one, is a huge loss. And straight away, there is an element of unreality here, that someone who was wealthy enough to own 100 sheep would employ a shepherd. But the shepherd uh, was the lowest really kind of uh, occupation. Shepherds were despised in Middle Eastern society as dishonest and basically a bad lot. The point is here that this shepherd actually is the owner. And there's straight away something, uh, something unusual about that. And I think that's the point uh, behind Ezekiel 34, where God likens himself to the shepherd who also owns the sheep. Ezekiel 34:11. thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself, even I, that's the emphasis, will search for my sheep and will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock. So God is identifying himself as the shepherd. He says, Ezekiel 34:15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep not just getting someone else to do it for him. The point is we each and each lost brother or sister belongs personally to the Lord Jesus and to the Lord God. And he goes after the lost until he finds it. But of course you could say, well, not every lost sheep is found by Jesus, unfortunately, and that is true. But the point is he has a positive, hopeful attitude to people. And as I have said uh, a few times in these, these talks, naivety is not the same as positivity. 
This positive spirit that he has of seeking until he finds is not naivety. It's not Alice in Wonderland, Cloud Cuckoo Land, as some people, I think, retreat from reality because of how it's hurt them uh, and just end up imagining that everything's hunky-dory when it isn't in life. And so when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders. Well, forgetting the children's pictures of happy sheep bobbing along on the shepherd's shoulder, the sheep would have kicked and struggled, just as there is a lot of hurt and pain to Jesus and to us in any attempt to reclaim the lost. And of course, visually, the shepherd bending forward slightly with this uh, heavy sheep on his shoulders, holding onto its legs, this visually was the very picture of Jesus carrying the cross across his back. This is what he did on the cross. He was bringing us home. And when he comes home, now look, this is strange, he takes the sheep back to his, his house, He's quite obsessed with this sheep, and he calls together his friends and his neighbours, and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so there is this great joy in heaven. Over every one of us, every time we repent, that can be a guy standing at a bus stop, smitten by his conscience and praying to God with his eyes open. And this joy in heaven happens. It's the same, of course, at baptism. Now, Jesus likens himself to a sheep, the Lamb of God, that was slain. So, the sheep represents both Jesus and also sinful man. And he was so identified with us in his death on the cross, that in his death there, there was no barrier between sinful people and him. He was totally identified with us. And he calls together his friends and neighbours. Well, there was in Palestinian Jewish society the idea of uh, a group called the Chaburim, which means that the friends, and these were sort of religious clubs in the villages of religious people. They gathered together and called themselves the uh, Chaburim, the the friends. But of course they only mixed with um, people of their religious level, those whom they considered in fellowship with them. And here Jesus is, I think, deconstructing that. He's saying that the friends gather together to rejoice that this dirty sheep has come back. They accept the sinner. And of course there's nothing that the sheep particularly did. It was simply found. There is nothing in this story that speaks of repentance in the same way as there is nothing in the story of the, um, of the lost coin. The coin couldn't repent And even with the lost son, um, there is a desire to go back and be um, a hired servant, effectively a craftsman, as if to say, I will work and uh, pay you back bit by bit all the money I wasted. Um, And yet the father just accepts him as as is. And then you come on to this story about the, the woman, that she loses one of her pieces of silver. Well... It could be that this refers to the dowry money that she would have had round her forehead. And this was all actually that she owned. Her body was not hers, it belonged to her husband, her clothes belonged to him, everything was his. The only thing she had was 
these ten coins. And to lose one of them was to lose something very personal. And so for everyone that is lost, and in a sense the whole world is lost cheap, this is a, a personally felt loss to garden and to the Lord Jesus. And that's their joy at our repentance. As I say, a guy standing at a bus stop, smitten in his conscience over something, and he prays to God and repents. That is the electric touch that we have on the heart of God himself and on the heart of Jesus. We are all that they have. And I think you see that really in the parable of the prodigal, that the father, representing God, representing Jesus, effectively divides all that he's got. He gives half of everything to the, uh, to, to, the, to the prodigal son, and then he says to the eldest son, look, all that I've got, that's the other half that was left to him, uh, is yours. So he gave everything to those two boys. And so all that God has is us. And from that point of view, I do not think that the implication of this is that he's not running a sort of a parallel system of salvation with some beings on another planet. That all his wealth, all his being, all his heart is tied up with us. And when you think of the number of people who will be saved in the end, from our point, point of view, maybe many as there's grains of sand on the seashore, there's not that many human beings. And there's certainly not that many who are true believers and have been true believers down the years. It's a minority. The Bible also tells us that. And we are everything to him. This is quite phenomenal. So we come on to this uh, parable of the prodigal. And the audience would have been absolutely disgusted with this younger son. Because you only really get the inheritance when your father dies. And he says, give me, give, give me the money, now. It's as if he's saying, for me, you are as good as dead. This is extremely rude. And the way that the, the other son eventually walks out on the father. I mean, you feel sorry for the lovely old man. And the idea is that we should feel the tragedy of God. That half his children, as it were, are arrogant and walk out from him because of their own arrogance and pride. And the other half do what the prodigal son did. And in this story, we have the choice to identify with one or the other. It's like Jesus says in another story of his about two sons. One said, I go, sir, to do the father's business and never went. And the other one says, no, I will not go. But after it repented and went. So again, you have the choice. Who do you identify with? Obviously, we hope to identify with the son who said, no, I will not go. But then repents and goes. And the same here, we, repent, we identify with the prodigal, because he's the one at the end of the story that's left in the father's house and fellowship, not the one who goes off, goes out. And so <clears throat> the son doesn't just take the, um, the portion of uh, the, the property that should be his, verse 13, he turns it into cash. And in the East, nothing is done quickly. And as we all know, if you've got something like a property that you want to sell, well, if you just want to sell it overnight, you're not going to get much money for it. But he sold all that he... He, he uh, just turned this into cash, sold it immediately, very quickly, not many days later. 
So this would have caused huge shame on the father's house. And everyone would have been saying, what an idiot. Why did the father do that? Why? All the family's inheritance has just been squandered for a, for a very small amount of money. And the guy's gone. Also, the older son really should, according to Deuteronomy 21 verse 7, the older son had two-thirds, and the younger son, in the case of two sons, had one-third, but the father gives him half. Now, again we see grace, and we are enabled to enter a little bit by this, into the struggle there must be within God, as our father, when we badger him, please give me this, give me that, could be good health, money, wealth, easy life, and you know, he really wants to. And he does. Almost, you could say, against his better judgment. And yet, he does this in love. And in that sense, he allows us to have what we really want. And it was so painful for him to do this. Remember how Naboth would rather die than sell his inheritance. It's in 1 Kings 21 verse 3. And for people in those days to to sell off your inheritance like this give it away was uh, awful especially to a son who basically said I want nothing more to do with you I'm cutting my ties I'm clearing off the point is I think from all this that God sometimes gives us the freedom even to reject his love this is how much he values free will and whenever we feel that somehow we're railroaded by predestination or by factors over and above what we think we can control, you need to remember that. That actually this whole parable is a profound insight into just how far God is prepared to go in letting us, in a sense, have what you really want. You really want wealth when it's not good for you? Okay, so you have it and see where it brings you. you know? And it's by his grace that we probably don't get those sort of silly things that, that we ask him for. So then this man, this prodigal, uh, goes off and he wastes all, all this money. And there was uh, in Palestine the, a ceremony called Kizaza. And the uh, Kizaza, the cutting off, uh, was a ceremony that was done particularly to a Jew who had lost the family fortune amongst Gentiles. He'd be greeted at home when he returned by the family. They'd break a pot and scream his name and say he is cut off from his people. And he was, as it were, put out of fellowship. The family declared their dissociation from him. And that was enough to make a lot of people fear returning. And the same thing happens today amongst Arabic Middle Eastern people who go to Europe to try to find their fame and fortune. They don't make it. And they don't feel they can return home. They become asylum seekers or whatever. They, they just don't feel they can go back because of the, the extent of that anger with the son who's wasted the inheritance, who didn't make it in the Gentile world. And yet the father is so different. You know, he won't have any of that, and I think that's why he runs out to meet the son to stop him being whistled at, mocked by the children, uh, laughed at, and as it were, dragged before the village court to go through the ceremony. He runs out to protect the son, 
from all that. And for an old man to run, even a middle-aged man, this was absolutely unheard of. He was supposed to walk in a stately manner down the street, and it was a shameful thing for a man of his age to run like that. But in this you see the almost the humiliation of God and of Jesus for us, because he's so sensitive to us, he so wants us to come back. And all through this you see Jesus deconstructing their ideas of fellowship and disfellowship. And those Jewish ideas of fellowship and disfellowship, in, out, boundaries and this, are frighteningly similar to the ideas, certainly that uh, I, the community that I grew up in held of disfellowship and excommunication and all that sort of thing. Jesus is saying, no, God has the heart of a father towards the son, and he will humble himself no end in order to do this. And in any case, he didn't sort of get hold of the son and say, yeah, so kind of what have you got to say for yourself? He, you know, the son doesn't even get the chance to come out with his prepared statement. The father goes right over all that. I mean, he had planned to say, I have sinned against heaven and against you. In verse 18, and oddly enough, they are the very words of Pharaoh's insincere repentance. In Exodus 10:16. And as I said earlier in verse 19, where he, he says, make me one of your skilled craftsmen. This isn't doulos, the usual word for slave. He wants to be a craftsman. He wants to try to earn a bit of money off his dad to repay the debt. And the father is just so thrilled to have him back. And yet the real point of the story is, of course, the older brother. Now, to refuse uh, an invitation and to walk out of a feast was a, a huge snub. It was never to be done. And also, if you are the host of a feast, for you to walk out of it and go outside and just get on with something else was also unheard of. And yet the father does this because he so wants the older son to come back. Now, we all tend to get pretty irritated with uh, self-righteous, hypocritical kind of people like the older son. We tend to get angry with them. And yet, you see here the, the love of the Lord Jesus for those people. He calls him his technon, his dearly beloved son. And he says, all that I've got, the 50% that was left to him, after he'd given the other son their 50%, he says, look, I give that to you. So he was left really with nothing. Two worthless sons, and he'd given them everything. And this is a picture of God's poverty, as it were, for us. Or Jesus, he was rich but made himself poor. Not in financial terms, because he was never physically, materially wealthy. But I think it's the same spirit. And really, when the Father says, look, all that I have I give to you, he's effectively saying, okay, so treat me now as if I'm dead. I will die for you. And this, of course, was seen really, in, in a sense, in Jesus, that God gave his Son. And I'm not saying that Jesus was God, but God was in Christ in his death on the cross. This was it's not that God physically died, of course, but as a father does for his son, he felt everything. Every blow, every drop of blood that, that left the body of Jesus was, as it were, 
the, the suffering of God. And he's saying, the, the father is saying, look, I'll die for you, you, the arrogant, hypocritical older brother. And I, I find it a lot easier to be forgiving to people like the younger son than I do to be forgiving to the arrogant, hypocritical older sons who say, if he's coming back to the meeting, we're out of here. If she breaks bread, we're gone. They're divorced. If they come to the meeting, we're leaving. I find it very difficult to cope with those people, quite honestly. Whereas here you see the absolute love of the father and son for those very people. But of course it's... um, it's a, a powerful warning to us that we should not be like that son who says, if he's back, I'm gone. Because the story ends with a bit of a question, and often the parables are like that. We have to imagine the possible endings. Does he come back? Does he stay outside? Certainly the parable ends with him outside the father's house and outside the father's fellowship because he has walked out. And really, I'm afraid, that is what people are doing when they say, if he's coming back, or she's back here, if she's at the meeting, I'm gone. That's what they're saying. They're going out, because if we don't love our brother whom we have seen, we do not love God whom we have not seen. And this whole idea of guilt by association, the whole idea that we can only fellowship, or as verse 2 starts off, you know, eating with sinners, this is... This whole mentality is what leads people to walk out of fellowship with God. Although it might not be apparent immediately in this life. That's what this parable is teaching. And let's just remember that we are so valuable to God. That those lost ones who we might consider lost, they're so important to God... And they should be important, therefore, to to us. So then, God was prepared to totally humble himself in order to try to bring back this, this son without him being humiliated or whatever. And in all our dealings with sinners, we should have that sensitivity. And not worry whether other people are angry with us, mock us, reject us. That's what would have happened to the father. What's the old man doing running through the streets of the village? You don't run like that. And why will you not bring your wasteful son before the village court and we will enact Kazaza? And you also should enact Kazaza and cut him off. And he lost, we can assume, his standing in the village, what was left of it. He lost his older son because of it. Because he had a heart of love. And I've seen this so many times. You have a heart of love. And you accept the sinner and eat with the sinner as Jesus did. And you provoke no end of anger. Real anger. I've seen this so many times within my own community. You extend fellowship to a sinner. And there is real anger. You know? People, I've had it, been punched, people using F words to me, people who stand up, you know, give the most wonderful talks and the rest of it, and I I, I try to, you know, figure it out, and I, I see the answer here. 
Yes, their anger, which is quite uncharacteristic for them. They're very nice people in many ways, in many walks of their life. But when it comes to this thing about having back the, the, the sinner, there's an anger that is absolutely incredible against the person, such as yourself or myself, who has that person back. Now, a lot of people don't fellowship with the sinner, although they want to. But they think, well, if I did that, I might be disfellowshipped. Uh, there might be a problem in my family. My husband wouldn't approve of it. My wife wouldn't like it. Oh, we, we might even be disfellowshipped, our whole ecclesia, our whole church. Pay that price. And take that from me, because I've paid a lot of those sort of prices myself. And I can tell you, pay that price. Because that is the price that God paid for you and far far more this is the price that the father paid he lost his place in the community lost his older son okay but there is no other way to respond to our experience of god's love because don't forget you are the prodigal you are the son who said i will not obey you and then you turn around and repented and said, oh, yes, I will. And it's no, it's no good saying, oh, no, oh, yeah, I might be a sinner, but I'm not that bad. Yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. And if we even doubt that, we have a, a huge problem. If we don't perceive the depth of our own sin. So then the father brings the son in, gives the son his signet ring. Uh, brings out the best robe. You remember Esther 6? That was what was done for uh, the one whom a leader wished to, uh, to honour. He pours out grace. And he sees the son while he was still far off. This is Luke 15, uh, verse 20. The Greek word is makron. Far off. And the same word, makros, is found in verse 13. The son goes to the far country. What that means is that, as it were, the father's eyesight, the divine eyesight, sees the person who is far off in sin and longs for their return. Now, he showed that grace before, as it were, there had been any words from the son. There was no making of repentance or a form of words of repentance, a condition. All conditions of fellowship, acceptance, repentance are out the window. If you want to come back, arms open. And if God didn't treat you and me like that, we would not be in his family. Because none of us repent as fully as we should. There are, as David says, sins of ignorance. So let's not assume that, well, yeah, I've repented of all my sins, so so should everybody else. Now, anyone with any, I think, sensitivity to their own nature, their own history, um, and to the profound depth and height of God's righteousness, anyone with that will, will realize that, of course, we do not repent as we should do. How many repetitive sins do you do? Loads of them, every day. We say, I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry I got cranky with so-and-so. I'm sorry I uh, got mad with that guy who cut me up in the car. But you know you're going to do it again. 
and don't kid yourself that you won't do it again, yes you will. So there's a big problem here. You can't say, well no, you've got to repent and that's it, uh, or else I'm not going to forgive you. Well, wait, wait a minute, where do you stand? The whole thing about, I'll only forgive you if you repent and all the rest of it, if that's your view, well okay, but the problem is, how are you going to get on with the Day of Judgment? When you are held to that standard, because in that very context, Jesus says, with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. So then, the prodigal son is us. There are at least four times in Paul's writings when he alludes to the prodigal and applies language out of this parable to us. Those who are afar off, for example, in Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, are now brought near to the father. I mean, this is prodigal son language. And, as I say, the the story finishes with the older son refusing to go in, in verse 28. And that's the very same word that is used very often about going in to the kingdom. He doesn't want to go in. If you won't fellowship your brother now, you're saying, I don't want to be in God's kingdom. You may think I'm making a bit of a point about this fellowship thing, and I am. Because if you do not accept your brother or sister, you are voting yourself out of God's kingdom. You're saying, this is not for me. Now, I believe that God's grace is so big that it might, I'm sure, will include the self-righteous and the arrogant and the rest of them. And yet... That, that is by grace, and I'm without uh, really any biblical support for saying that. The biblical support is for the position that if you do not accept your brother, if you will not go in to the supper with the father and his son, then you will not go into the kingdom, because you yourself do not want to be there. Now, these are worrying things, and... It's very often the case that we on an individual level may say, yeah, sure, yeah, I agree with you, Duncan, that's all right, I tick all the boxes, totally agree with you, mate. But if we belong to a church or to a community that does not practice this, policies are only upheld because individuals allow them to be. You talk to anyone who's really suffered from abuse, from abusive regimes or whatever, they'll all say the same, and you see it in autobiography after autobiography. The real problem, it's the same with the Holocaust. Why did it happen? Yeah. Why did it happen? Because spineless people in their millions said nothing and went along with what they did not really agree with. And from that point of view, those millions of people were to some degree responsible for what happened. And so the call that I'm making here is twofold. One is to realize that we are the prodigal. And to have the faith and courage to repent daily of sin, knowing the joy that this gives to the very heart of God. And the other appeal that I'm making is that we, on that basis, fearlessly, no matter what rejection, uh, relationship problems we have, no matter what, that we accept all, all God's children. God bless every one of us as we try to do those two things.